my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that salvation is not earned or merited, but it is something that you give to us. You said, I give you eternal life. But thank you that when you give it, you change us, that your sheep truly hear your voice and they follow you. Thank you for the security that we have because of the finished work of your cross, that you hold us in your hand and the Father has us as well, and that the work you began, you promised to complete when you come back from heaven. Thank you for the Spirit who's been poured out into our heart whom you call the earnest, the down payment, the guarantee that what you began, you will finish. Thank you that you sealed us for the day of redemption. And we come to you in this new week and we thank you for the opportunity to worship you together. We pray for the great commission this week, beginning here in our own community, that we would care truly about the people that we will meet And that we will look to you for opportunities to reach out and to share with people who have never met you, who are by nature, as we once were before you redeemed us, children of wrath. May we move this week with a sense of compassion, but with also a sense of holiness. May you today, as we open your word, you call it bread, food, milk, honey, meat, may we feed on it. But we do so not independent of the Spirit, our helper. We ask that he would illuminate the truth that is found, that we might see it and more than just see it, apply it and obey it. Help us not to be like those who just hear the word and refuse to respond to it, but help us to obey that we might find true freedom. I need your help today. I pray in the services you've given me that you would strengthen me and use me, that together we might lift up Jesus and that he would be glorified. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the prophet Daniel chapter 7. What the book of Revelation is to the New Testament, the prophet Daniel is to the Old Testament. In fact, you will soon discover, if you've not already, that without a proper understanding of Daniel, many of the New Testament passages that deal with future events, you won't be able to understand. And so Daniel fits in hand with the Revelation, the Olivet Discourse, and so many other critical passages. And so we're in the seventh chapter, which is one of the most comprehensive prophecies dealing with the nations of the world. We're not rushing through it. We're trying to understand it. But if you remember from our last time two weeks ago, we turned a corner when we came to Daniel chapter 7. We moved into the prophetic section of the book of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 are largely historical with a little bit of prophecy in them. Chapters 7 through 12 are almost entirely prophecy with a little bit of history in them. We saw that chapters 1 through 6 take place chronologically in the life of Daniel. However, chapters 7 through 12 do not. 7 through 12 fit in and around chapters 1 through 6. You can take 7 through 12 and lay it over 1 through 6. And if you don't understand that, it will become a little confusing to you. Now, last time when we introduced this chapter, I gave you an overview of it. Let me 
refresh our memories for the sake of those who are new, but also to cement some of these truths in our own hearts. The first three verses really introduce us to the vision. We find an introduction to the vision. Then, beginning in verse 4, which we started last time, through verse 14, we find the information that is found in the vision. And then when you come to verse 15, all the way through the end of the chapter, we find the interpretation of the vision. I really want you to get that, because again, if you can get a hold on this chapter, it's going to open up so many other passages in the Word of God to you. So let's review the context of what we've covered so far. First, the introduction to the vision. And if you remember, we looked at two things, when Daniel dreamed and the circumstances around what Daniel dreamed. First, we're introduced to the time when Daniel dreamed in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Again, going back to what we just discussed, chapters 7 through 12 fit in and around chapters 1 through 6. You can see on this diagram, the book opens with the Babylonian captivity where Daniel and his three friends, we learn they're carried away. Uh, Then in the second chapter, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream of these coming kingdoms, a very important dream, and we saw Daniel, who is used of God to interpret it. In the third chapter, this uh, big-headed man uh, builds an image, no doubt exalting his own kingdom as the head of gold, and we studied Nebuchadnezzar's image. And then in the fourth chapter, we saw how God humbled him, and we saw his pride. And I believe that in the mercy of God, he was converted, and I will meet him in heaven someday. Now, between chapters 4 and 5, between Nebuchadnezzar's pride and the fall of Babylon, you find chapters 7 through 8, the chapter we're in today, the time of the Gentiles, and chapter 8, the ram and the he-goat vision. Uh, After chapter 5, after the Babylonian fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, in between chapter 6, before Daniel in the lion's den, when he's an old man, remember in chapter 1 he's a teenager, when you come to chapter 6 he's around 85, 90 years of age. But between chapters 5 and 6 you have one of the most important prophecies in all of the Word of God, the 70 weeks prophecy. We'll probably spend three weeks just on three or four verses. Then, um, after chapter 6, we're going to come to what I call the dark side in the 10th chapter. You're going to see what is going on in the invisible realm. And when you see it, you'll never view the news in the same way. You will see how the prince of the power of the air is really at work. And then finally, chapters 11 through 12 serve as a conclusion. Now, it happens here in the first year of Belshazzar, this particular vision. That tells you it happened after the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and before the overthrow of Babylon in the fifth chapter by the Medo-Persians. Remember Belshazzar? He was the one who saw the hand on the wall. Remember him? And Daniel came in and interpreted it. And that night, Darius the Mede came in and overthrew Babylon. Now, Belshazzar, we know, ruled for 15 years. And so the vision happened about 14 years before the handwriting on the wall, which would make Daniel about 65 years of age. So we have a very firm date. Hopefully you wrote it out on your margin. Uh, It's 553 B.C. Now, that's the time when the vision 
uh, took place. In addition, we looked at the circumstances of what Daniel dreamed, verses 2 and 3. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, remember, Daniel is the first apocalyptic writer in the Bible, and the term apocalyptic implies symbols and signs. And so Daniel has a dream where he saw in the dream certain symbols. We saw the distinction between a dream and a vision. A dream is done when you are asleep. A vision is when you are awake, but it's like you are asleep. And both happened while he was on his bed. And in this dream, in these multiple visions, he has given three clear pictures. First, we studied the symbolism of the sea. Verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And so letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we saw the sea was not literally the Mediterranean Sea, most often referred to as the great sea in the Bible. But in this case, it's a symbolic sea. And uh, it represents the mass of humanity. Uh, If you weren't here, you might want to go back where we gave the biblical support for that. Secondly, we saw the working of the wind. I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What do the four winds stand for? Well, we learn from Scripture that winds refer to the four points of the compass, and the blowing and the agitation of this sea, where literally the devil himself blows his fiery, hot, evil breath over the mass of humanity, and up comes four literal kings, four literal kingdoms. In addition, we are told about the birth of the beasts in verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So it's out of this turmoil, out of this unrest, that four great beasts were coming up out of the sea. So pictured here in Daniel's dream are four beasts who are spawned in this sea of humanity. We use it metaphorically too. We say, what a sea of people. And out of it crawl not literal beasts, but because of what we read in verse 17, we know it's a symbol. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So out of this seething, pulsating mass of humanity, disturbed by the four winds of the four corners of the earth, come four great kingdoms. And if you were here in our study of Daniel chapter 2, then you will remember these four empires. Now that was the introduction to the vision. Then we began last time to look at the information in the vision. Uh, we examined five specific truths. First, he tells us something about the nature of the nations. And so as pictured here, he gives us four nations. The first that is pictured by a lion, the lion of Babylon. And so to this day, you associate Babylon with a lion. If you've ever seen the gates of Istar, that Daniel would have visually walked by on a daily basis. They're in a museum. They're in London. They're covered with lions. I showed you a picture some weeks ago. In addition, in verse 6, this kingdom, or verse 5, is followed by the bare nature of Medo-Persia. And we saw the significance of this lopsided kingdom and the three ribs in its mouth. Then this was followed by the leopard nature of Greece, a leopard being an extremely fast animal, one of the fastest on the planet. 
and how with lightning speed Alexander the Great conquered the world. And then in verse 7, the brutal nature of Rome. This is all prophetic, and it all happens just as God said. He's not a historian. He's not recording after the fact. He's recording before the fact because God knows the future. And then we saw this fourth empire, of course, that was different. And so he doesn't really have an animal to describe this fourth kingdom, this fourth beast, because no animal adequately expresses it. However, John takes a crack at it in the Revelation. Let me read to you Revelation 13.2, which you should have out in the margin. This fourth kingdom is really a composite of all the other kingdoms, and that's why there's no single beast to represent it. And the beast, which I saw was like a leopard, we've already studied him, and his feet were like those of a bear, we saw him, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, we've discussed him as well, and the dragon gave him power in his throne in great authority. So this beast is giving power and authority by the dragon who is defined in the revelation as Satan himself. So Daniel says that this fourth beast in verse 7 was dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large teeth of iron. Furthermore, he said it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And then he notes for us here in verse 7 that it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. This empire is different because unlike the other empires that had a time frame in which they came and gone, this fourth empire extends over a long period of time. Each of the three succeeding empires were conquered. Rome was never conquered. It just fell apart into different pieces. But someday, God will bring some of those pieces back together, and from that compilation of nations will come Antichrist. So we asked and answered a very important question. Did Rome ever have 10 toes, like described in the image of Daniel 2, or did it ever have 10 horns, which this chapter tells us signifies 10 kings? No, it never did. History never records that. And that's why Daniel is telling us that this kingdom was different from all the beasts that were before it. I want you to see that what he is describing here, it's not really a fifth kingdom. It's the fourth kingdom coming back to life, but it's out there in the future. It's the most vicious of all these kingdoms. And we will see at the end of this vision that he is so shaken by it, he is left pale because it is so different from all the rest. Now, remember, we studied it last time that oftentimes in the Bible, in a single verse, there can be a gap of time found in the verse. So when you read the Old Testament, you will find sometimes in one verse two portraits of the Messiah. And later on, I will show you why God did that. It's very important. But think of it in this way. Suppose you have a mountain peak here and a mountain peak here, and you're looking at it from this perspective. All you can see is two mountain peaks. And there are two mountain peaks that are pictured concerning Messiah. One is he's a suffering servant who would be pierced through for our iniquity, who would come and die in horror upon a brutal Roman cross. The other picture is him as a reigning sovereign Lord. But what you don't see is that between these two mountain peaks is a valley. And we call that valley the church age. It was there in the Old Testament, but it was hidden. And so Paul said it was his privilege in Ephesians 3 to unfold this mystery, the church that was hidden in the Old Testament. 
And so very often, like we looked at last time from Isaiah chapter 9, you find two pictures of Messiah. One where a baby is born. The other where the governments of the world will rest upon his shoulders. Let me give you another example. I want you to see this today. Hold your finger here. Turn to the left, Isaiah 61. You need a Bible. Not everything is on slides. Now, the slides are for our visitors because 99% of the visitors tell me that when they come here, this is the first church they needed a Bible. And so we provide the slides for them. I'm glad you guys got laptops and, you know, tablets and everything else, but you need a paper Bible to mark it up, to circle things, to write notes out in the margins. So bring one, if you will. If you need one, talk to me. Isaiah chapter 61. Find that. Hold your finger there. Don't lose it. You got your two fingers in two places now. And go to Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Luke chapter 4. We're going to read Isaiah 61 first. And then we will compare it to what we read in Luke chapter 4. In these two passages, we find a good example where in one verse of Scripture, a prophecy will leap over hundreds of years, even millennia. And again, the Old Testament prophets would often lump together, sometimes in the same verse or paragraph, both comings of the Messiah. Now, follow along Isaiah 61 and verse 1. We read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. Then verse 2 says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Okay, having read that, keep your finger there. Go to Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Luke 4. You remember Luke? records the start of Christ's ministry when he was there in his hometown. Wasn't received very well. They brought him to a cliff. If you've been to Israel, you can go to that very cliff. There's only one place that can fit the bill there in Nazareth, and they literally want to throw him off of it. Of course, it's not his time to die. His power emanates from his body, and he walks through the crowd. But if you remember on one occasion, he's in the synagogue, and he reads a messianic passage. He's handed the scroll. The scroll of Isaiah is a big scroll. Remember, there's no chapter-verse divisions. It's a thick scroll, one of the biggest in the Old Testament. And he finds the passage. How can he find it so quick? Because he knows the Word of God. He knows it's 45 turns or whatever. He knows the thickness. He knows right where it is because he studied the Scriptures. Let's pick it up in verse 17 of Luke 4. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. See the change of typeset? If you're new to the Bible, that means it's an Old Testament quotation. And it's from the text we just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he sat down, handed the scroll to the attendant, and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it has. But why didn't he quote the entire verse? Why did he stop right in the middle of Isaiah 61 and verse 2? Notice it says he he came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped in the middle of the verse without reading the second half of Isaiah 61b about God's vengeance. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped for the simple reason 
that the second half would not be fulfilled until his second coming. And so go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel wants us to know here in verse 7 that this fourth empire was different from all the beasts that were before it. It was different in that unlike the other empires that had come and gone, this fourth empire will extend over a long period of time. This fourth empire will end with the second coming of Christ. And so in this passage, in these verses, there's a big gap of time between the beginning of the fourth kingdom and the end of this fourth kingdom. Look at verse 7. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. That part of the prophecy all happened in the early part of the Roman Empire. But look at the rest of the verse. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That part has never happened. Rome never had ten horns. Yet we are going to see that he is now looking way down the corridors of time because look in verse 8, we're going to read of this coming Antichrist. In verse 9, of the Ancient of Days. In verse 13, of the appearing of the Son of Man where his kingdom is established. So this fourth kingdom, unlike Rome in its early days, had ten toes, ten horns, ten kings. And unlike this fourth empire that had... At its origin, two legs of iron, representing the eastern and western segments of the empire, prophesied ever before it happened. In this final form, there are two feet representing ten toes, and the feet, if you remember, were made, according to Daniel 2, of both iron and clay. Iron and clay do not mix. These ten nations are distinct, yet they will be unified, and in that sense, they will have some iron strength. Now, we're going to discuss when we come to the Revelation after Daniel next fall, I suspect we will be there. When we come to the Revelation, we are going to see that there is a ten-nation kingdom identical to what Daniel speaks of, that Revelation 13 speaks of. What is this ten-nation kingdom? Well, hold on to your seats. We'll come to it, all right? Now, for the, for the meantime, let me just say, as Daniel says in the 12th chapter, this will take place in the latter days. We know that much. During the time of the Great Tribulation, there will be a ten-nation confederacy from among whom will come Antichrist. Now, we finished last time with verse 8 where we studied the advent of the Antichrist. Let's review it briefly, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So here we have this ruler and he's a take charge kind of guy. There are many names given to him in Scripture, as you can see on the slide. He's called the King of Fierce Countenance in Daniel 8. He's called the Little Horn. He's called the Prince who is to come. He's called a despicable person. He's called the Willful King. He's called in Zechariah the Prophet the, a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd. He's called the beast in Revelation 11, Revelation 19. He's called the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. But most of you know him by his most popular name, used only once in the Bible by John in 1 John 2, the Antichrist. Now from verse 8, we learn several things about this coming ruler. You're going to learn more about the Antichrist and the prophet Daniel than any other book in the Bible. 
The revelation will add some important details. But in the 8th chapter and then in the 11th chapter, we're going to learn so much about this person. But first we studied something about his origin in verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. I want you to notice that it is out of these ten nations that we are introduced to an 11th horn by which the Antichrist will come. A horn, if you remember, Daniel tells us in this chapter, represents a king. And so when we're talking about a little horn who comes up among these kings, he's talking about another king who will suddenly come to the forefront. And this king, this little horn, is not a part of this ten-nation confederation. The Hebrew is very specific. He comes up among this ten-nation confederation. Here's a picture of that little horn. Ha, ha, ha. So out of these ten kings that will rule simultaneously, one will come, he'll uproot three others, and he will dominate the world. So that's his origin. Then we studied his obscurity. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. He's referred to as a little one. So we have this leader who starts rather diminutively. He is a little horn, but this little horn who starts small is going to become a big shot of sorts. He has a very insignificant beginning. In fact, there are three kings who think they can challenge him. Three presidents, three prime ministers, whatever they are in that day. And so he's going to explain it to them a little bit clearer. And he will uproot them. And as we will see next week from verse 20, he will become the greatest of them all. People will be surprised. This man who will come to the forefront, one whom they never would have thought of, this little horn. We also studied last time his observation. Do you remember that in verse 8? This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man. He may seem small, but he's wise in the world's perspective. And we studied some verses where eyes in Scripture describe insight, intelligence, prudence. This Antichrist is characterized by an unusual ability. He is shrewd. He is knowledgeable. He will be able to solve problems that no one else will be able to solve. But of course, if you've read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation 13, the reason is it's because he has supernatural power from the devil himself. Then we learn something about his oratory. Do you remember that? Verse 8, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Friend, you talk about an orator. You talk about a man with a mouth, he's talking about a man who can capture audiences, a person who can inflame the passions of people, a person, and he's best described when you put 8 and 11 together of this book, with a big mouth. He's a big mouth guy. I don't know how else to describe him. He's a man of great boasts. He'll be able to convince the world that up is down, down is up. Black is white, white is black. He'll convince you to sell your mother to slavery and you'll think you're doing God a favor. If it were possible, Jesus said, he would deceive even the elect. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that his coming is in accord with the activity, activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Now that's all by way of review to set the context. Now, in addition to the nature of the nations and the advent of the Antichrist, we want to begin today with the judgment of Jehovah. All of a sudden, Daniel's dream, in the midst of all this turmoil, 
begins to come into a new picture beginning in verse 9. You see, it would be very easy to read the first eight verses and think, man, this world is a mess. This is depressing. And it's only going to get depressingly worse. But God now gives us some heavenly perspective that he is in control. So when you come to verse 9, you move from the scene on earth to the scene that is in heaven. We move from Satan's little horn to the ancient of days. We move from the big mouth blasphemies of the Antichrist to the worship of angels before the throne of God. And so God takes Daniel to what is going to happen in the future following this revived Roman Empire. Let's read verses 9 and 10. Follow along. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. This is the only time in all the Bible where God the Father is referred to as the Ancient of Days. We have a song that has a sing on occasion about it. And here God is pictured in human form. Now understand, God is not a human. God doesn't have a human body. Mormonism is all wrong. You know, they deny every fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Don't be deceived to thinking that they are Christians. They are not. They deny the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the authority, the inerrancy of the Bible, even the virgin birth. They say God the Father. They use a text like this. They'll show you when they come to their homes a picture of God the Father. And he came down in a human body and had a relationship with Mary, and that's how Jesus came. Absolute heresy. But sometimes God uses pictures, theophanies, in order to help us to understand who God the Father is. God is spirit. The Bible teaches that no one can see God and live. I want you to see how he manifests himself. And by the way, let me say, no one could see God the Son and live had he not incarnated himself in human flesh. But the Bible is very clear that no one has ever seen a full, real manifestation of God the Father, and no one ever will see that. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 6, that God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor in eternal dominion. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean you won't have a fuller relationship with him in heaven than you do now. I already love my heavenly father, and I've never seen him. And I can't wait to get to heaven when I will have a body that will never be able to sin, a glorified body, and I will understand him so much more fully. But he's giving us a picture of God the Father in human terms so that we can understand something about his holiness, his glory, and his eternality. And by the way, if you've read Revelation 1, this is the exact same description of God the Son in that chapter. And we're not surprised because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, I want you to notice that in this vision, lest anyone think that the Antichrist and the kingdoms of man are going to pull something over on God, the Ancient of Days is pictured here in the role of judge. And there are several truths that I want you to see about God as judge. First, he is the forever judge. Jot that down. He is the forever judge. We read here in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. 
And as we'll see in a moment, the judgment is about ready to take place. God is getting ready for the judgment. So the courtroom is being made ready. And so thrones are set up. Please note, there is the throne, singular. And then there are thrones, plural. Why doesn't the Old Testament name these thrones? Again, because when we come to the Revelation, we discover that the 24 thrones represent the 24 elders of the church. The church was hidden in the Old Testament, but Paul was privileged to unveil that mystery. And so the Ancient of Days, the Scripture says here, took his seat. And this scene perfectly corresponds with what the Apostle John writes in Revelation 4 and 5. The Ancient of Days here, a reference to God the Father as distinct from God the Son who is about to be presented in the 13th verse. That's the same picture in Revelation 4 where you have God the Father, you have thrones of the 24 elders, and you have in Revelation 5 and verse 7, God the Son being presented. Now, again, this term is in human terms to help us to understand the nature of God, of his eternality. You know, my children would always ask me, well, who made God? And my grandchildren say, granddaddy, who made God? And I said, well, if someone made God, then that person would be God. We can't put our puny little finite minds around it. But we just inherently know it. Why? Because as Ecclesiastes says, God has written eternity into our hearts. And so Psalm 90 and verse 2 tells us, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We can't explain it, but we know it is true. God never had a beginning or an end. He is forever and ever. And he's called the Ancient of Days. Someone who is old hopefully has wisdom. Well, God is infinitely wise, and only God is eternal, only God is infinite, and only God has the infinite wisdom to help us as little puny finite people to understand those things that are important. So he's the forever judge. Secondly, he is the faultless judge. He is the faultless judge. We're told in verse 9, his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure will wool. And so his dazzling white garment, his vesture, and the hair of his head is white as wool. That speaks of God's perfection. That's why God tells us in Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. King David gives us the same picture in Psalm 51.7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And when you see terms like white as snow or pure as wool, it's speaking of the absolute purity and holiness of God. And that's why the Apostle John in Revelation 1.14 describes Christ in these words, his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. And it's so it's not surprising to us, is it? that the saints in heaven are clothed in garments of white because God will have finished and completed our salvation and we will be absolutely, at that point, eternally pure. Now, in addition to him being the forever judge and the faultless holy judge, I want you to see he's the fiery judge. We read here at the end of verse uh, 9 and the beginning of verse 10, his throne was ablaze with flames. 
Its wheels were like a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Now, God is often pictured as fire in Scripture and is repeatedly used to speak of his wrath and his holy hatred towards sin. Now, most unbelievers can quote 1 John 4, 16, though they don't know where it comes from, but they can say the Bible says God is love. That's true. But most of them cannot quote Hebrews 12, 29 that says our God is a consuming fire. That speaks of God's justice. That speaks of his wrath. In Psalm 97, we read cloud and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and judgment. Justice of the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out from before him and burns up his adversaries round about him. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1 that when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven, he shall come with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He is coming to execute judgment on this world. God's throne is bathed in fire because he is holy, he is righteous, and he is a consuming fire. Don't get the idea that God is up in heaven saying, naughty, naughty, naughty little children. Now, don't do that. Oh, no, 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 no. He has a holy hatred for sin. He will punish sin. Ecclesiastes says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. You know, I often apply that to capital punishment. I believe the Bible teaches it. You say, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work because if a man gets tried in 1980 and he gets executed in 2015, there's a problem. In some countries of the world, you get tried on Friday and you're hung on Saturday. <laughs> the people think twice. Uh, I'm not saying that we should discount the justice process, but listen, a lot of people in this world think, oh, I'm sinning with impunity. God's not going to do anything. I am just fine. I want to tell you, someday judgment is going to show up and he is going to come. You should write out in the margin next to Daniel 7 and verse 10, Revelation 20 and verse 13. It's very interesting that the judgment that we are going to read about in a moment concerning the Antichrist here in Daniel 7 is identical to the judgment that all the lost will face that's described in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Let me read. We read in verse 11 of that chapter, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And let me just say in passing, a lot of people in John's day thought that if you were lost at sea, and many were, and your bones were eaten by the fish, that somehow you could escape the judgment of Almighty God. But buried in the deepest ocean of the world will not allow you to escape the judgment of God. If you are buried in the deepest place on the planet, the Spirit of God will come and find you and put you back together. If you're disintegrated from the face of the earth by an atomic bomb, God will get you. I told the people yesterday at the funeral I was preaching that Christians historically never cremated their dead. That's a pagan practice in our day. Most Christians do it innocently and ignorantly. 
but they would never have done that in biblical times. The only people who burned their dead were pagans in the Scripture. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all buried. Joseph was buried. John the Baptist was buried. Ananias and Sapphira were buried. And when God himself performs a funeral, he, God, buried Moses. We studied on Easter Sunday that putting the body in the ground is symbolic of putting a seed in the earth. We expect it to come back to life, and we do so in faith. Now, listen, if your loved one has been cremated, it's not a problem for God. Whatever has happened to it, the Scripture is clear. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. What does that mean? It means death, which is symbolic here of the place of the grave, and Hades, the place of the soul. God will bring the two together, and each and every soul be judged according to their deeds. Why? Because your deeds will show whether or not you've been born again. Now, if you know this context, he's not talking about one big general judgment. In Revelation 20, the only people present at the great white throne judgment are the lost people of all time. And their deeds will proclaim that they were lost. Even the good moral man who did things for his own glory, his own benefit, but not for the glory of the one who redeemed him by his precious blood. And hell won't be the same for every person. And the perfect equity of God, hell will be worse for some people. It's described in horrific terms for anyone who goes, just as heaven is described in marvelous terms. But heaven's not the same for every believer. God evaluates our works not to see if we go to heaven. That's settled ever before you die, whether or not you've trusted Christ. But how you will spend eternity in heaven. Listen, you will not be able to hide from a holy God. You can't pull the dirt over your face and hide in some grave. He's coming after everyone. Listen to Revelation 20 and verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is present to show that none of the people there at this throne have their name in that book because they were lost and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Fire repeatedly, habitually, is a picture of the judgment of God. Now go back to Daniel 7. In addition to him being the forever judge, the faultless judge, the fiery judge, I want you to see he is the final judge. Verse 10 says, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Now the word in Hebrew, myriad, is a mathematical term like tithe. And the King James and the ESV is correct in interpreting it, though not translating it. They render it 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And that's the thought behind the Hebrew text. Standing around God, attending him, are 10,000 times 10,000, a myriad of angels. Someone asked me when I did our course in angelology, do we know how many angels there are? And the answer is no, but we do know there was a fixed number made, never to create any more. 
Angels don't procreate with other angels. That's why Jesus said in heaven we'll be like the angels. They don't have little babies called cherubs. A fixed number was made for all time. But we do know from Scripture there are millions upon millions of angels who surround the throne of God to execute His will. Furthermore, we learn here from verse 10, verse 10 that Daniel saw that God as the judge, when he convenes the court, he has the books. The books. You know, God has a library. We're going to study that library when we come to the 12th chapter. And this particular books that are open concern one man, in particular the Antichrist. And of course, when we come to the interpretation of the dream in verse 26 next time, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Now today, criminals go loose. Sometimes they get off on a technicality. There's not a reasonable amount of evidence to show that they're guilty, or maybe the evidence was collected in an improper way. They had an illegal search warrant, or they tapped your phone when they should not have been, and so it was not permissible in court to prove that you were wrong. But I want to tell you, none of God's evidence is going to be thrown out of court. No lawyer will be able to get some man off. God is a God of justice. God's taping all your phone calls. He's reading your email. He knows the thoughts of your heart. The Bible says in verse 10, and the books were opened. The books were opened. God has it all recorded in his ledges. Now, you may have gotten away with something. You may have stolen something and no one knew it. You may have committed adultery and you think no one knew it. But God wrote it down And he is the final judge that you must contend with. Revelation 20 verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small. No one is excluded from this judgment. Doesn't matter if you have a big name, a big shot or a little shot. They're all going to be there. The great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Look, if your name is written in there, all the other books have been erased. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now, God has a book, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and in it are all the forgiven people for all of eternity. But then he has the books documenting the sins of the lost by which he will ultimately judge them, which brings us from the judgment of Jehovah to the burning of the beast. Now, listen, God is a God who is equitable. And the means that he uses to judge a real person known as Antichrist is the same means by which he will judge the lost of all time. So that brings us here in verse 11, where this scene shifts once again from the one doing the judging to the beast or the Antichrist who's about to be judged. And we find here in verse 11 first something about the destruction of this fourth beast, the destruction. Here comes Mr. Big Mouth. Look at him in verse 11. Then I kept looking. Because of the sound of boastful words which the horn was speaking. Daniel said, I kept looking because of what I heard. Looking because of the words which the horn, the little horn, the Antichrist was speaking. And modern vernacular, he's basically saying, I can hardly believe my ears. Here, God gives Daniel a vision. And all of a sudden, he changes the channel where he moves from being the judge of all men And he changes the dream, and he comes back to this Antichrist, and he said, I kept listening. I just couldn't believe the boastful, arrogant, blasphemous words of this beast. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. 
And Mr. Big Mouth will shoot off his mouth, but his day is coming. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Now, right now, this moment, for the Christian absent from the body, present with the Lord, for the unbeliever absent from the body, present in a place referred to as Hades. Hades is an awful place. Jesus described it in Luke 16. It is a place of fire, but it's not the final place. Hades is then incorporated in the end, according to Revelation 20, into the lake of fire. The first one to go into the lake of fire is the false prophet. Now, I should say parenthetically that this is a favorite verse of the Jehovah's Witness, another cult, and many liberals. We got liberals now who are writing on evangelical presses like Rob Bell. He's a heretic. And I got letters crucifying me for saying it in other parts of the country when I went on the air and they were listening to me in New England. Oh, he just spoke at our conference in New England. He's a wonderful man. He's a heretic. And now he confesses he's a heretic. He rejects Jesus. He performs homosexual marriages. And now he's Oprah's pastor. Nonetheless, the liberals love this verse. They love this kind of stuff to teach the doctrine of annihilationism. They say, when you die, you're just extinguished. That's it. You end in the grave and it's all over. People tell me that sometimes. I'm just going to die and that's it. There's no life after. How wrong they are. They are denying the dictates of their own heart because eternity, the scripture says, has been written into their heart. Now understand, if you die and you go to hell, you're not suited to go to hell on the body that you have. God is going to raise up your body after you leave Hades, give you a resurrection body, and ultimately put it in the lake of fire. Remember what Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, notice the word deeds in both cases italicized, to a resurrection of judgment. Now, don't get confused in thinking that there's going to be one big general revelation, uh, resurrection where all the men of all time, believers and unbelievers, are judged together. Revelation is very clear in the 20th chapter that those who are there are the lost only. Jesus is not dealing here with the time of resurrection. He's dealing with the kind of resurrection. There is going to be two kinds of resurrection. A resurrection to life for those who did the good, deeds italicized but implied because their deeds prove, their fruit gives evidences that they have been born again. And those who did evil to a resurrection of judgment. Look, this body is not suited to walk on streets of gold. I have a fallen body with a sin nature right now. God is going to give me a glorious body. This mortal must put on immortality. This perishable must put on imperishable body. And neither is a man's body suited for hell. Because if you were dropped into hell, you would be immediately extinguished. So God will give the unbelieving lost of all time a resurrection body that will literally actually feel pain but will never, ever be consumed. Revelation 19, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the 20th verse, and the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Would you circle that word in your mind, alive? 
the false prophet and the antichrist, the beast, were thrown alive. Now, at the coming of Christ, the Bible says he is slain with the breath of his mouth. But God will give him a specially prepared new body to go into the lake of fire. In fact, we're told a thousand years after the beast and the false prophet go into the lake of fire, and at the end of the millennial reign when the devil is loose and he's thrown in there, the beast and the false prophet are still burning. Listen to these words. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Please note the tense. He describes the state of this beast and this false prophet that they are also, not were, but are also in this lake of fire where they will burn and be tormented forever and ever and ever. Listen, if you study the context very carefully, you discover that there's a thousand years between the time the beast and the false prophet and the devil is thrown in there, and they are not annihilated, they are there burning. You say, Pastor Carl, do you think the fire is literal or symbolic? Friend, God said fire, so that's what I say. But for those who misinterpret this text and say that this is somehow symbolic, let me tell you, the symbol is always weaker than the reality. You see a picture of a sunset, it is never as magnificent and real and powerful to actually look at a real sunset. And in the original language, in all the other places in the Word of God, God never uses metaphorical language to describe hell. God doesn't want you to go there. He didn't prepare this place for humans. He originally prepared it for the devil and his angels. But my friend, if you die and go there, it will be no one's fault but yours. Because God provided a way of escape. His son didn't deal with some of your sin, but all of it. And if you will flee the wrath of God and come to Jesus Christ, he will save you. So there's the destruction of the fourth beast, but there is the destruction of the former beast. Look now at verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, who are these beasts? Well, we've already discovered the first three beasts and the first three kingdoms. Babylon was taken over by Medio Persia. The Medo-Persian Empire was overthrown by Greece, and Greece ultimately overthrew Rome but they continued to exist in some form and that they were absorbed into these other empires. And the point of verse 12 is that the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Grecian empires were to some extent continuing on in the final empire. That's what we studied in Daniel 2. Do you remember? Let me refresh your memory. Daniel 2, 44. And the days of those kings, plural, kings signify kingdoms, plural. And the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now listen carefully to the next verse. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, and the silver, the and the gold, remember that? That smiting stone, a picture of the Messiah who will come and put an end to the kingdoms of these world. So these other kingdoms are absorbed into this fourth kingdom. And when this king comes, 
representing a kingdom made without human hands, he will smush all the nations of the world. Look at verse 12 with that in mind. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So there's a sense in which all these nations represented by each succeeding empire have an extension of life for an appointed period of time. And when will this appointed period of time end? Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. All the nations seen in these final empire, this revived Roman empire, they're going to gather together. Now, we call it the Battle of Armageddon, but my professor at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Pentecost, would repeatedly remind me it was not the Battle of Armageddon. It's called the War of Armageddon. It's not a single battle. Now, there is an important battle. We'll stand on the field called Megiddo where we will see a great battle that is going to take place. But there's a series of battles. And the final battle happens there in Jerusalem. Messiah is coming back to the Mount of Olives. He will put his feet literally on that mountain. And all the nations of the world are going to come probably to shoot him and nuke him out of the sky. But it ain't going to happen, my friend. He is going to crush the nations of this world and it's going to happen according to the scripture, according to the appointed period of time. People ask me, why doesn't God just shut it all up and close up this mess? Because it's not the appointed period of time yet. Why doesn't God just kill the devil? Because it's not the appointed period of time God has it in control. It is all on his timetable. And when you understand that, you can lay your head on the pillow at night and sleep sound. Listen, in this vision, we've considered the nature of the nations. We've considered the advent of the Antichrist, the judgment of the nations, the burning of the beast. Finally, I want you to think about the crowning of the Messiah, the crowning of the Messiah. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one coming like a son of man, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Two truths about the crowning of the Messiah. First, the presentation of Messiah. What we find in this portion of the vision is the one who will carry out the sentence of judgment. The Father decrees it, but as the New Testament says, all judgment has been given unto the Son. The Son carries it out. And so verse 13 indicates here a vision where the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days. Now please understand that the Son of Man found only once in the Old Testament is a messianic term. It's a reference to the fact that a baby would be born and the baby's name would be called Mighty God. That God would take on our humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used any one times in the New Testament, only of the Lord Jesus. It's a very important title that reflects both his glory and his humility. Three key titles given of Jesus. Son of Man, Son of David, Son of God. Son of Man refers to his humanity. Son of God refers to his deity. Son of David, that's his Jewish name. That refers to his royalty. And in many verses, all three are described. Let me give an example. Isaiah 9, 6. It describes my Messiah's person really giving us three pictures. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. That's his humanity. That's his title, son of man. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That speaks of his royalty. That's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 
when the son of David will come and rule forever and ever on his throne. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That speaks of his deity. And for a Jew to mention one was to embrace all three. If you said son of man, then you immediately said, then this person is saying he's the son of David, that he is the son of God. That term, son of man, implied deity. Do you remember on that occasion when Caiaphas put the Lord Jesus under oath? He said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. And so when asked, are you the son of God? He said, yes, I'm the son of man. He quotes the passage we're studying today, Daniel 7, 13. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds in heaven. Jesus claimed that he is the person spoken of here in Daniel chapter 7. And because the high priest believed the Son of Man was the Son of God, he tore his robes and he said, you have committed blasphemy. So let's read Daniel again with that in mind. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. By the way, clouds are always a picture of deity in the Bible. When Christ is, uh, or when the children of Israel are going through the deserts for 40 years, they are led by a cloud by day. When the Lord Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, the Father appears in a cloud. When Christ uh, is on the um, uh, uh, Mount of Olives, when he comes back to that place, the Bible says he's coming back with clouds. When he's ascended into heaven, he goes in clouds. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. It's a picture of what we're reading here. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. You cannot convince me for a moment that the Trinity is not taught in the Old Testament. We're going to see in a few weeks some Trinitarian passages where all three members are mentioned in the Old Testament in one verse. Here, two members of the Godhead are mentioned. God the Son, here called God the Man, is presented to the God, God the Father, the Ancient of Days. That brings us finally to the proclamation of the Messiah in verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 2. God originally said to Adam, let him have dominion. But if you remember, Adam lost that dominion when he sinned, and the devil became the small g, the god of this world. He was given the kingdoms of this world, and so it was a real legitimate offer there in the wilderness where he said to the Lord Jesus, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world because they were his to give. But Jesus went to the cross and recaptured those kingdoms, and Christ refused Satan's offer, but there's coming a man who will not refuse, and his name is called the Antichrist. But there's coming a day when what is Messiah's will be fully realized, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations of every language might serve him. There's not one word for serve in Hebrew that can capture it in English. Some of your translations say that they might worship him. You worship only God, but the Son of Man is God. 
And let me just say, our worship is not just when we come here and sing some hymns and read the Bible and give our tithes. Oh, that's an important part of it. But that's a small part of it. Most of your worship as a holy and living sacrifices takes place 24-7 outside of the confines of this room when we are not assembled. Daniel adds, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He is one with authority and power. And when does all this happen? Matthew 24 says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Revelation eleven fifteen in the same way as Matthew puts it at the second coming. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. We're going to have to hold it off there. You can just write to be continued. But let me give you a couple of the applications as we close. Number one. Any true study of prophecy should always lead us to action. Two critical applications here. One concerns action, the other concerns rest. Look, there are a lot of Christians today who I call prophecy nuts. And all their prophetic studies do is produce a carnal excitement. But listen, if your study of the Word of God, the prophetic passages, do not translate into service and worship of the Lord God, then you've only filled your head with knowledge and you've not really understood. I talk to people who have their heads in the clouds of prophecy, but they have not translated that prophecy into a single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. Look at Daniel's response. We'll come to it next week. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The visions in my mind kept alarming me. Why is he so burdened? You see, there's something about prophecy that is sweet in your mouth, but it is bitter in your belly. If you really understand it. Listen, friends, when you understand the coming judgment of God Almighty, on the one hand, it will make you excited. On the other hand, it will make you compassionate. If you really understand prophecy, you will care about doing evangelism. You won't come up with your lame little excuses that it's not my job, I don't get paid to do it, it's not my gift. You will obey the living God. Peter says, when he speaks of the judgment on the unsaved, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, it should lead you to service and worship of Christ. Secondly, I learned that it should not only lead us to action, but any true study of prophecy should lead us to rest. Many years ago, after my wife had delivered our second son, we had just come home from the hospital and we were watching the news and it was just so discouraging. And she was holding our little newborn, Jordan, and it just, I mean, you know, look, I didn't have the baby. I don't get the blues. But I was blue. I thought, what kind of a world are we bringing this little kid into? And I want to tell you, it's gotten a thousand times worse since that day. And her grandmother, who was with us, reminded us. She said, Jesus said, don't fear. These things must happen. 
She was simply reminding us that God is in absolute control, that this is our Father's world. He knows what He is about. He knows what He is doing. He said, not even a sparrow is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear because you are more valuable than sparrows. Let me conclude by reading Psalm 2. It's a magnificent psalm. It's a perfect picture of what we've just studied, where the Son of Man has given the kingdoms of this world. And in this psalm, you hear the different voices. First, the voice of the nations. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against the Lord. They're doing that every day in State houses, ruling things that are immoral is okay, is legitimate. They take their stand against God's anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. That's what this godless world is doing concerning Christianity. But then you hear the voice of God in that psalm. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is the ancient of days installing the Son of Man as we just read. And then you hear the voice of God the Son. Listen, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth. And then the psalm closes with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord in reverence and rejoice with trembling. Friend, if you are a Christian, you can rest tonight that our Father has everything in control. But if you are here this morning and you do not know in a personal second birth, life-changing, life-transforming kind of way, the living Son of God, you should tremble if you are wise. The last verse of the psalm says, Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Now, our Holy Father, we thank You this morning for what You've written. I pray today for some dear person who's listening to me here in Bluffton, in Graniteville, maybe somewhere in the world on the Internet, who is unsure of their salvation. Help them to know that the Lord Jesus didn't pay for some of their sin, but all of it that He bore all of the judgment we deserve, that if they will come to the risen Lord today and call upon Him in faith, You promised whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. Would you do that, my dear friend? Would you say simply, Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father, we thank You that this is Your world. You are sovereignly ruling and reigning, and according to the appointed time, you will come and catch up your church, and you will unfold the events that will lead to the crowning of the Messiah. We bless you that everything that you said in this book that concerned the first coming literally actually happened, and how that gives us a sense of confidence that everything that you have said in this book concerning His return will literally actually happen. May we put our head in this book 
and renew our minds and our hearts with it that we might grow and change to the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.